in an interaction where if it's starting to feel tense or conflictual is asking the question either internally or if it feels appropriate, even making it explicit, but trying to understand how is this, like what really matters to them? What is it that they're needing right now? Not so much needing, but like, what's the importance here for them? And I think that question, if we just hold that question, it can be a pivot towards something that can be sometimes a breakthrough. And if we can get that and even say, oh, it sounds like X, Y, and Z and reflect it back, that starts to then get at the real juice. And then there's a lot more opportunity to get creative, collaborative, and constructive about resolution. Hey, it's Zach here, and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter, because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm going to send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. I'm here today with Dr. Jessica Higgins, who holds two graduate degrees in psychology, two coaching certifications, and over 20 years of experience helping people navigate the terrain of long-lasting intimacy more skillfully and mindfully. And this is specifically done through your Empowered Relationship podcast, your online courses, your coaching, and a whole multitude of different areas, all designed to help people have better relationships. So... Dr. Higgins, very, very excited to finally get you here today after so many stops and starts. You and I, our calendars are not friendly to each other. <laughs> well, thank you for your persistence and again, your flexibility. And it is a pleasure to join you today. 
Yeah. Uh, and uh, the reason that I am so persistent is because I know that this conversation will both have tremendous value to the people listening, but it's also going to be a little bit off the beaten path. And I have a feeling we're going to get a, a little personal and a little emotional and a little intimate far more than I might. So talking about professional networking and cold outreach and how do I really present myself and my branding materials and really want to talk more about just the process of how do we build healthy relationships, both professionally and personally. And I think the the area that I really want to dig into the most is understanding how to both give and receive feedback slash criticism, because whether it's in your personal relationships with a spouse, partner, or other, or in a professional relationship where in Hollywood and the entertainment industry, it's frankly like the marriage where you see your spouse more because you're with these people 12, 16, 18 hours a day. I feel like almost everything that we're going to talk about probably universally applies to better communication and all these other things. So um, there's a whole lot that we are going to dive into and uh, appreciate having the level of expertise that you have. But before we get into the weeds, I always like to know a little bit more about the messenger as opposed to just the message. And what I would love to know more about and what I've discovered through having talked to and gotten to know a lot of coaches better, both just offline, but also having them on the show. And I know this is true for me, and I don't know if it's true for you, but people often choose coaching for a very specific reason. It's because something happened with them, some learning experience or some kind of aha moment. They're like, now that I realize these things and I have learned them, I want to help others get through this journey as well. Because I would assume with all your degrees, you could have very much just been a marriage and family therapist or anything else but you chose specifically to become a coach. So talk to me a little bit more about your origin story and how you ended up doing what you do. Hmm. Well, I'll try to be concise because it's been a You don't need to be concise on my podcast. You can digress (laughs) all you want here. Okay. Well, I do feel that the type of coaching that I'm offering is a blend of the psychology and the coaching. And to speak really about the coaching, I like that often coaching is about helping people be proactive, having some scaffolding to help get the results that they're looking for. And so as I just pulled back a little bit, as far as psychology, I knew probably in middle school that I wanted to be a psychologist. And I think the feedback that I was having from my mother more specifically is from a very young age, I just had this deep interest and love of people and why they do what they do and their emotion and just being really plugged into that. And that being said, I've gotten a lot of people that have like made comments around, oh, it must be so nice to have known what you wanted to do at such an early age. And it's such a wide field. And anyone who knows it's this huge umbrella and one can be in serving different types of clients and different modalities. So uh, it has been a whole process of working with different people. I had a whole career with working with youth. But to get to the more relationship coaching, my dissertation was on relationship. And that was, Zach, to your point, prompted by my own difficulty in relationship. So if I go back in time, when that's not my husband, my husband and I have been together 17 plus years, and this is a different relationship that ended up failing, so to speak. And going into that relationship, 
I felt pretty well equipped. I had a master's in psychology. I had an undergrad in psych. I had a family that was already practicing communication skills, emotional intelligence, and then had chemistry and we had shared vision. So I thought we had all the makings of an amazing relationship and then began confronted with that There's developmental stages in relationship. And that second stage is more of the power struggle or the conflict stage where the differences become so much more visible after the first stage, which is the honeymoon stage, and how to negotiate that. And there was a lot of threat that got activated, I think, between the two of us and the particular dance and how we were attempting to resolve that. And I think had we applied the principles that I now know, I do think perhaps we could have had a different outcome. However, life circumstances, I went to California and entered into the PhD program. So life, you know, took us on different paths, but I'm so grateful because what it ended up doing to answer your question is it really spawned me into a deep dive into understanding relationship principles that I did not feel well-equipped for. And I felt like I should have been given like what I just described. And as I began to self-study and really learn, it became that much more clear to me that there were principles that at that time, this was many years ago, most people, the average person didn't have access to. I think that's changed given the podcast and the whole information age. But unless somebody had the type of modeling or perhaps they were self-studying, I don't think they were getting this information. So hence the the dissertation. And then I just, in my practice, it's still, Zach, just to say this one final piece, when I was in my brick and mortar and when couples were coming in, it was still, I would say, weighted in couples coming in with their last ditch effort. And when I clear my conscience, we've done, we've made all these attempts and we just want some support to really make sure we're making the right decision and separating. And likely one person had already been a little bit kind of checked out of the relationship. So at that point, there's research that says the average couple that comes in to work with a therapist is basically been in pain for like seven years. And it's like going to the doctor. The analogy is going to a doctor with a broken arm that was broken seven years ago. And like, can you help me? Yes. And had we gotten a chance to really work with some of this more immediately, we could have been perhaps um, more effective in creating repair and helping, again, the scaffolding to really reworking the patterns. So given all of that, first of all, for anybody that's only listening, that it doesn't have the video on right now, dear Lord, does your face light up when you talk about your work? And it is very clear that you love what you do. Hmm. Um, I can just see it all over your face, how excited you got talking about this whole process and helping people. Uh, And that to me is so important when you're going to build a relationship with either a therapist or with a coach. Um, And this is a common question that I get often from people that want to work with me is, well, what's the difference between a, a therapist? and a coach, the difference being I have no degrees whatsoever. So they have to take a lot more of a leap with me. And I couldn't say I'm a therapist because I need years and years of schooling. And like you said, dissertations and PhDs and all this practice and internships and whatnot. Um, But I even asked the same question when I worked with a therapist years ago, it was with a a psychoanalyst. And I actually have an entire episode about that journey. If people want to go way back in the archives, I'll put a link in the show notes with Dr. Stephen Isaacman. Um, But really in helping me get a better understanding my past and who I was and experiences growing up and your identity from your parents, yada, 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 right? 
But I kept saying to the person at the end, so what's my homework between now and next week? Give me action steps. He's like, that's not how this works. I'm like, but I need things to do. I want to learn. I want to grow. I wasn't that excited. It was a much more painful process. But that speaks to who I am as a person. And I know that you're very similarly wired and that it's all about growth, personal development. You want to dig in deep. And we'll get into that a little bit later with where that can create conflicts in relationships. Uh, but at least for now, just on a little bit more basic level, help me better understand the difference between if I am having relationship challenges, why I would want a traditional therapist versus a coach. Hmm. Well, I will say that therapists are trained to coach. It's just, they're also trained to do many other things. Whereas coaching and that approach is typically helping the couple in this case, or the individual with relationship concerns, as we talk about relationship, is having more of that experiential unpacking. So in my my framework, I'm usually looking at, okay, let's get in, let's look at and unpack what's getting in the way. Like what are some of the tendencies, habits, beliefs, past experiences that might inform the way you show up. So it's a little bit of like, let's let's get at this. Then let's give you perhaps more adaptive. So the strategies and tendencies we typically use have been adaptive at one point, but perhaps now are maybe not the best approach or they're maladaptive even, or they have major side side effects. So then we can look at, well, what are some other ways to give you the result that you're looking for? And in a way that really supports you, serves you and is adaptive, And then how to get the support to integrate that and really distilling it into clear action steps to have a clear roadmap or that scaffolding to get into practice. And I think the therapeutic coaching, I I can't divorce myself from that, right? So it very much does inform my work. And so Oftentimes, it's not an exact equation, although with the podcast and programs, I'm trying to give principles that are more, can be generalized to probably any situation. But when we're giving that customized support, we're looking at the individual and and their specific nuances and helping them feel like they have the real actionable steps that they can start working and integrating. The the coaching is, I think, more proactive, really helping someone have the understanding and the support, the experiential guidance to be able to maybe even repattern some things so that they can really be in service of what they want in a new way and up level. Yeah, I think that uh, I think all of that makes a whole lot of sense. And I want to add another layer to it. And given the level of experience and expertise that you have, both just in your coaching practice, but literally your multitude of degrees, um, I'm coming from this as a novice and I'm looking to see if I'm on the right path or the wrong path. Um, But I've been told multiple times, even just one of my students yesterday had said I had my meeting with my therapist and they said, this coach that you're working with. I got to be honest, they're making a really big difference and they got you where you are now in about eight weeks and it would have taken me about a year to get there. So whoever you're working with, I want you to keep doing that. Nice. But when, and I've, I've heard that from people more than once and I never say, oh, I'm a therapist, but there's definitely, there has to be some form of informal therapy in the coaching process. Like you said, you can't divorce them. But the simplest version when somebody's asked me, well, what's the difference between a therapist and a coach and when do I need one and when do I need the other? 
my kind of layman's explanation is I feel like therapy focuses a lot more on understanding the past and coaching is much more on understanding where do I go from here and overcome obstacles to achieve my goals. Am I totally off base coming from somebody that's way more trained and experienced than I? No, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I I would add therapists typically are diagnosing to, I refer out to other therapists when it relates to trauma or certain experiences, as you're mentioning, that might impact an individual to have certain symptoms or even a diagnosis. And so there's different waters there when we really look at what what the goals are and what it's serving. But I do think there's truth to what you're saying. Absolutely. Yeah. And the diagnosis definitely, I have probably the disclaimer that I say the most, most often, it should just be a button and zoom and a recording because I say it so often. So here's my advice as a non-trained, non-licensed professional. This is just your friend giving you advice. It's always the same thing to make sure to frame it as these are my own personal thoughts. Don't take it as professional recommendation, but I'll say you should maybe talk to this specialist or this specialist or see this person because I'll know almost instantly. I'm like, nope, I'm now out of my depths. This is not my thing. I don't want to pretend I know the answers. But when it comes to setting out a a plan and moving forwards, I often feel that that's an area where as a coach, another component of it is you've been through the same trenches. I've fought the battles that you have fought and I can empathize and here are some of the strategies that I've used. So I just, I just want, I wanted to help people kind of understand the difference between those two, because I'm still trying to figure it out. And for most people on the outside, they're like, I have no idea what the difference is or what it even means. Yeah. For sure. I mean, there is a lot of overlap for, I mean, and it, it is distinguished And there. I think it's a great question to ask whomever one is looking at engaging with or hiring that that's, you could probably ask that question to multiple people and you'll get a different answer. So mm-hmm. I think I'm it sure. can be really helpful to get clear on what, what that is and what it means. Mm-hmm. So where I would like to go next is again, and you, you've used the term a couple of times that I love, it's just kind of laying some scaffolding. So you have a little bit of structure to build off of. The yeah. first piece that I wanted to build off of was having a little bit more clarity between therapy and coaching. And the second of which is a word that you've used, tendencies. Mm-hmm. And one of the frameworks that I find so valuable for me is Gretchen Rubin's four tendencies. And I first want to make sure you're familiar with it. I am, but please refresh my memory because I, I want to plug into you and be really with you here. So essentially, the the this is something that I use in the coaching practice a lot to help people just better understand how they react to specific expectations. So her basically her four tendencies are that it's not a personality framework. It's not here's your type. I hate all these kind of like Myers-Briggs. You are this or that or that or that. Like I don't believe in any of that. But with the tendencies, it's only in the realm of how do I respond to either internal or external expectations. The four tendencies she came up with were I am either an upholder, which means that I will meet all the expectations. You ask me to do something, I'm there. I'm there on time. If I want to do something and I want to exercise five days a week, I do it, Right like military precision and discipline. Uh, The second one would be the obliger, which would be that I am here above and beyond to meet all of your expectations. Mine, not so much. Struggle meeting my own inner expectations, you know, self-care, et cetera. Questioner is happy to meet your external expectations or mine. It's got to make sense. It's got to be justified. I need to know why. I've got 17 questions that I need to ask before I'm sure that this is the right decision. Uh, And then the fourth one would be the rebel, which is you're not going to tell me what to do and neither am I. 
really struggling with expectations in general. So that's something mm. that I find is very useful and essentially helped me better understand in about three minutes where the challenges were both in my relationship personally, but in a lot of the challenges that I was having professionally. So I just kind of wanted to throw that out there uh, just as a, a, a type of language or uh, framework for us to be able to, to dig in going forwards. Um, but is there anything else that when it comes to better understanding relationships, conflict, feedback, criticism, which we're going to dive into deeper? Is there anything like this similar in your world? Because I love this kind of stuff. Well, we could spend weeks talking I about this. I bet we could. We could. Well, I will say, first of all, I don't, I don't know if I've come across, her name sounds very familiar, but I don't know that I had that in my mind. So it's really mm -hmm. helpful that you utilize that. And that's something that's been so informative around orienting and just assessing some of the conflicts that might emerge. One of the major frameworks that I work within is really looking at the attachment system. And most notably, as it relates to couples work is the emotionally focused therapy. And that's looking at the deep core drivers and motivation as it relates to romantic relationship, I'll specify. Now this shows up in every relationship, but when the stakes are the highest, this is when it gets activated the most. And the attachment system informs how we think, how we feel, and also our nervous system. And this was developed at a very young age in our environment, in our caregiving. Was it consistent or was it unpredictable? Was it actually even neglectful or even abusive? So we learn, even as infants, we're learning how to respond to our world and what's available. And we get a, almost a relational imprint and a roadmap of basically what to expect and how to negotiate the, the dynamics. And so that gets put on rep repetition or repeat. And there's a tremendous amount of learning in that. And where this actually begins to get further activated. So it's, it's formed in early childhood and then it's reinforced throughout school years and young adulthood, but we might not feel the system alive until we enter into a primary love relationship, like a marriage or a deep partnership. And then we will notice, I don't feel this way with anyone else. Like what's going on here? Why am I feeling these things? Or it feels threatening or we feel like all these, this activation in the nervous system or feeling threat or insecurity or not good enough, or does this person really love me? All of these things. And so we have certain ways in which we deal with that. And so I could talk a lot more about this model. We could spend the entire episode and probably several more on this, but this is very helpful when I'm working with particularly a couple and understanding what they're experiencing in how their partner's showing up because their partner on the outside may look a certain way, might be saying a certain thing, which could be congruent with the, with what they're feeling on the inside, or it actually could, could be a protest or it could be some protective strategy. So it might not actually be that revealing of what's actually happening, happening on the inside, but whatever the partner's saying and what it sounds like will land with the other in a certain way. And so that's really important to get clear on around what are the deep underlying layers that are usually informing why we do and say what we're doing in relationship. So you're saying that sometimes when my partner 
says something and I hear something different or vice versa, <laughs> that's a thing. That's a thing. Shocking. <laughs> Shocking. Yes. I know. Uh, I, I know that we could go into this probably for a four part episode and we certainly don't need to go that deep, but this is something I don't know that much about. And anytime that I come across any form of framework that helps me simplify and better understand behavior, basically all the bells and like noises and everything go off in my head saying, oh my God, I must learn more. So we don't need to make, make this an entire series about the attachment theory, but I think this is a good way to have some language about how we can better understand our partners either personally or even somewhat professionally when it becomes really intimate in that creatively collaborative environment. Mm -hmm. So can you start by giving me just kind of some, some basic examples of like you have attachment theory A versus B versus C and here's kind of what they would look like if they manifested. Like what, what's one example of, you know, this, this attachment type or theory or whatever that we're talking about? Yeah. And I like the uh, use of tendencies because there are a lot of people that will try to say, oh, you have an insecure attachment or you're anxiously attached or avoidantly attached. So research simplifies this to basically come to some type of findings, right? So it's to reduce it. So I would just for our conversation say secure attachment is, again, the thinking that the world and people are going to respond to me emotionally. I feel safe. People are going to engage and my needs are going to get met. And physiologically, I feel relaxed and I feel at ease and I feel that I can be myself. So that's the sense of security that ultimately, if we have an optimal or even good enough upbringing, we'll likely have that more or less. Now, I think the research is like 60% of us or even more uh, have an insecure attachment style. And the two major insecure attachment styles are more of the anxious. The anxious is the checking. The, are, are, are we still okay? Are you there? Are we good? And making sure that that consistency and that, and that um, relationship bond is being attended to because there's a known felt experience that it's, it isn't, it has been inconsistent. And so that, or even there's been rejection or abandonment or loss. So that felt experience of like, I might lose you. You might go away. You might reject me. Thus, I'm going to continue to just check and pursue and get reassurance. And the other major second insecure attachment style is more of the avoidant. And this is the one that typically has felt some level of not being responded to. Either parents are overwhelmed with work or there were too many children in the home to really get those real clear attunement, like emotionally being seen and responded to, or there was neglect or abuse. So the individual learns, oh, my needs are not going to get met. The best way for me to cope and and get by is by relying on myself. So that self-reliance and turning away because that is not safe. That is not a reliable source. So I turn away. And so typically the person that's a little bit more avoidant, that will look like the one that shuts down, the one that gets flooded, the one that gets overwhelmed. Now flooded could go either way, but typically the avoidant feels less stable in engaged. It, it Usually there's a lot of stimuli and that again, it hasn't always felt safe. So then they tend to want to turn away to kind of ground and regulate. 
Similar I can go to into the, dynamics. Oh, but I wait, wanted to- wait. No, this, this this is a great place to pause because I didn't know uh, a whole lot about this. This wasn't a matter of, oh, I'm feeding you a question, haven't already done the research. I am coming into this genuinely curious and want to learn more about this realm. And I had the exact same experience listening to you just now that I had listening to Gretchen Rubin on stage five years ago, oh, where wow. as she was describing the tendencies, it was like, I get it now. Now it makes sense. Going through those. Instantly, I'm like, yep, I know which one I am and I know which one my spouse is. Um, So because my spouse is not on the call, I'm definitely not going to involve her in any of these conversations or reveal any details Um, because, you know, I don't think that that would be, you know, would uh, would be respectful of her. And I certainly don't (laughs) want to put her in that position. Um, But the the joke that I make, which I think is probably only half joking, is that people that listen to this podcast in certain ways probably know me better than that my wife does because I'm so open about just learning about myself. And as we talked about personal development, growing, you have to be vulnerable and open. And the one that popped off for me immediately was the, the and I'm, I, while you were talking, I actually brought up kind of this framework of the attachment styles in front of mm-hmm. what it calls this more insecure, anxious, ambivalent one, where it's not the avoidant, but it's more the sense of, I'm just, just checking in. We're still good, right? Is everything still cool? Um, give me an example of where, if somebody relates to that specifically, that might come from. Yeah, well, I will use myself and my husband knows that I share a little bit of our dynamic. And as I mentioned, we've worked these patterns. So part of what I'm sharing is back in 2005, 2006. So I had experienced quite a bit of loss growing up and did have, I believe, some intermittent inconsistencies in my caregiving. And unbeknownst to me, I will say, Zach, before I really got deep into choosing and wanting deep commitment. I felt pretty happy in my romantic relationships. And, but I was playing it a little, I was swimming in the shallow, I'll say. I wasn't necessarily like all in. So my, my insecurity about feeling abandoned didn't get activated until I really chose in. And so what it looked like in my relationship with my now husband, then boyfriend was, I mean, people who know him, he can be contained in his presentation, meaning he's not super expressive. So sometimes on his face, it's not super clear what he's feeling or where he's coming from. And he's, he's a conscious guy, so he'll communicate, but he's not like me, I will make it so easy for anyone <laughs> show you my belly. Like I will, I will be conveying what I'm feeling so that that's really visible. Well, I would be uncertain about his feelings for me or his commitment towards me. And I would want to check or what it would look like, Zach, which I don't think I was fully aware of. I knew at that point I had done enough work to know that I did have a fear of abandonment and fear of rejection. So I had enough footing underneath me to have connection with that and take care of that and do my work and be vulnerable in that. And I wanted to have a different dynamic and relationship. So I was willing to show that. 
However, when there was conflict that would emerge, my tendency was to get, and I, I didn't feel malintended with this, but I would get into the lawyer mode. I would want to ask a bunch of questions to your point about Gretchen. Oh my God, you and like I are the, the same human being, by the way. Continue. <laughs> this is scary. <laughs> Well, so I would want to understand more, but what I was really in service of was this need to check to make sure we're still good. And I wasn't owning it. It was like I was anxiously looking and tracking and trying to discern so I could get the information and he could feel it. And he would not enjoy that. He would want to push away a little bit. And then I would pursue him more. And that is a dance, the pursuer and the distancer. And when I would start to recognize that tendency, I would be able to to slow down and get in touch with, okay, what is this deeper layer? Oh, I'm afraid you don't like me as much as I like you. Or I'm worried you don't want to work this out. I remember, oh man, this was several years after we had been together and we were in some conflict and he just looked like he was aloof and, and wasn't like interested in working it out. And I was like, I just need to know that you want to work on this. And he's like, of course I do. But I didn't know that. I felt super insecure about it. And just knowing that I could tolerate not resolving it, knowing that he was still going to come back and and work it out with me. Yeah, I think, like I said, basically everything you said, um, you and I are wired as almost the same human being. Um, the the one that I think really resonated with me, and again, you know, I'm not going to go down the realm of talking about my partner at all. But when it comes to the idea of I'm totally an open book, um, my mom has told me many times throughout my entire life, she's like, you cannot hide anything. I know exactly what you are feeling at any given moment because it is all over your face. So I'm very expressive and very open. And when you're in a relationship where the other person doesn't have that as much, you just, like you said, you you almost want it because that's the way that you see the world because that's how you're wired. But because somebody doesn't express themselves as much, that comes off as disinterest. Or like you said, there, there's this actual dance of the, the pursuer and the distancer. And what I'm fascinated by now, and this may not even be something you have an answer to, um, but I'm going to go back to these tendencies for a second where it's this idea of, in general, everybody's heard the term opposites attract. Mm -hmm. And there are certain styles or combinations that work really well together. And then there are other styles that just don't work together at all. So this is kind of a random, maybe even a dumb question. But why would somebody that's a pursuer magically attract to a distancer? Mm -hmm. This doesn't seem like that makes a whole lot of sense. (laughs) Right. Well, there's many ways to answer that question, but from a psychological perspective, oftentimes it's the part of the brain, the amygdala that has known a certain level of injury or hurt or even trauma and is looking to repair that. So Harville Hendricks and Helen Hunt, they call this the picker, that the amygdala is often informing the picker. This is not in the field of awareness it's unconscious. We recognize very quickly, oh, this is familiar. I can now resolve the thing that has been hurtful or painful. However, when it's unconscious, we can be attracted to the familiar. And when it's unconscious, we could end up just repeating the same dynamic because it's familiar. And we're, you know, on some level looking to repair that, heal that. And we have to 
show up differently and be conscious around it to have a different experience. Otherwise, we're just going to repeat the same dance. My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're gonna invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself, that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a tilt Matt. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me Topo. That's T-O-P-O. And I've, I've always been fascinated by, like I said, first, the, just the idea of opposites attract. Where it's like, well, that just seems dumb. Why wouldn't you want to be with somebody that's like you and thinks like you and believes like you? Number one, that can be boring and you need that challenge. But um, number two, like you said, there's often something that we're seeking. And in the conversation that I had with Gretchen Rupin when we did uh, our podcast interview together, um, we were talking about specifically if you work in collaborative relationships, how useful it can be to understand your tendency so that you can find the right person to work with. And as an example, um, anybody that listens to this, especially my students know that I consider myself a questioner on steroids. There's a reason that I've transitioned to an entire career path. It's all about talking to other people and asking them questions and getting answers to my questions because I'm insanely intensely curious. And I found that before understanding these tendencies, if I would hire somebody to be on my team that was another questioner, they drove me insane. Would you just stop asking questions and just do the thing? And that's a very, very common point of conflict where two questioners oftentimes, they butt heads because one of them has already done all the work and done the research and I'm confident this is the right answer. Now, you just need to agree that this is the right answer and oblige and go forwards. So that's an example of how I've used the, the, the four tendencies framework to better understand what role do I need on my team? If I'm interviewing somebody, I'm not going to say, what's your tendency? But I want to ask questions to get a sense of, oh, they seem very much more the obliger sense or the upholder, very rigid, or they're not going to listen to rules and they're the rebel. So the reason I bring all this up is I feel, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, 
But when we dig into how do we construct a conversation that's going to include conflict or feedback or criticism, I, I change the way I approach my conversations when I better understand the other person's tendency. So how can we start to better understand these attachment frameworks and how is that then going to inform the way that we start and structure conversations when it comes to feedback, criticism, conflict, et cetera? Hmm. Such a great question. I want to make two little points about just to affirm what you're saying around opposites attracting. And I do think there's a, a polarity, even with like masculine, feminine, or just this idea that we bring something different. And that can actually be very um, helpful in continuing to keep the passion alive, right? We're not same, same. We're not getting into this codependent, like, oh, what do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? Like, we're not really willing to be occupying our space. And so when we can have that tension a little bit that can keep the passion and sexual intimacy, like it can keep that fire alive. And also to your point in a wider beyond just intimate relationship, I think when you have people that think differently or operate differently, that level of diversity, I think really adds to the strength rather than just being in the same, same. But to answer your question in this dynamic, when we can look at what are these inside parts? So it took a level of work for me to understand, oh, he's distancing or he's shutting down because he's overwhelmed or he feels as though he's failing me or he's not good enough. Like I had no idea. I didn't see that on the outside. I just saw him not saying a whole lot, seemingly looking away or seeming disinterested. And that landed with me in a way of like, oh, like, is he with me? Where is he? What's going on? And then I would get a little bit louder, not yelling, because I'd done enough work to know that that didn't work. But I would still get pursuey. And that would kind of further hit that point for him of like, oh, she's wanting me more. I'm not showing up in the way she wants. And so that's not good enough. So as we've worked this and allowed for those inside parts to be more visible, because the thing I didn't say earlier, Zach, was when I would start to recognize, oh, I do feel some insecurity here, or I do some feel some fear. When I would show that to him, rather than approach him with my questions, I have yet to feel him turn away. Like it's this almost like tuning forks that when I soften and I show that vulnerability, it allowed him to meet me and respond to me. And that's where it's an irony because it's counterintuitive. The thing that I think is ugly or shameful or not attractive. And I'm showing him with this huge risk of like, I don't know what he's going to say. And I'm just giving him like the, the deepest part. He can viably just stomp all over it and for him to actually meet it and be with it and like respond to it. Like that's the thing I needed and wanted. And so that over time just became so helpful. And for him to know, oh, you're not grilling me because you think I'm failing you. You're grilling me because you're scared or she's got some sensitivity here that is showing up. Like that's a whole different thing. And similarly, so I'm going to answer your question. Hang in there. No, uh, I love this. I Do not edit yourself at all. This is fantastic. Okay. So for him, when I understood, oh, he is experiencing this dynamic as intense 
and that it's activating him in this way of feeling like he's not good enough or he's failing me or I, I'm somehow not happy with him. It allowed me to soften because my ultimate goal was to feel closer to him, to feel more connected about whatever the conflict was. So as we began to work this and have enough repetition and experience, I've learned if he starts getting overwhelmed. And I think to your earlier point, being able to see even with my husband, who tends to be a little bit more contained on the spectrum rather than super expressive, I can still read it right? When you know someone, you can still pick mm -hmm. it up. And this is what we call in psychology, neuroceptions, neuroception. Our nervous systems are reading the tone of voice, the nonverbal, the microfacial expressions of the others around us. And we're picking up emotional information uh, in like a nanosecond. And this is like one of our greatest sources of information that's very quick. And this comes from a very primal place. If we think about herd animals, not every animal, let's say a gazelle needs to see that there's a lion in the grass. If one senses it and starts to get all agitated and a little spooked, they all spook, right? So we respond this way and to be getting this type of information. And so likely in relationship, we're picking up on this information. And typically what happens is we're reacting to each other. But if we're trying to set this up differently and understanding the deeper layers, then to your question, as we understand these deeper places, deeper longings, attachment systems, or insecurities, then we can typically show up for ourselves that we can make that visible. Oh, that part of me that gets scared is, is like, I feel that right now, or I'm starting to get worried, or I see something in you that's letting me know this is beginning to feel hard. So can I slow down? Can I, can, do we need to pause? Do I need to soften my voice? Do I need to claim what's happening for me more rather than asking you questions? Like there's a lot of ways that we can start to show up for that part. So it begins to feel safer. And when it's safe, this is when we talk about the nervous system, we can get into the ventral state where we can have intimacy. We can have closeness. If we're threatened, we're not capable. That's not their capacity is we're not available for that. The first thing that you thought of when you were, or the first thing that I thought of when you mentioned this idea of neuroception, and I've never heard it quite put that way, but it sounds similar to this idea of mirror neurons. Yes. Uh, this idea that, you know, if, if when somebody yawns, we yawn. If somebody smiles, we smile, we feel happier. It just kind of, I'm not going to get existential into, you know, the universal connection of all beings and atoms and electrons and whatnot. Definitely don't need to go there. Uh, but even in uh, my craft of editing and filmmaking, you play so much when, uh, trying to create and improve the quality of a performance playing on mirror neurons. This idea of, oh, well, if, you know, if they just have this little smile in the corner of their mouth, that's going to trigger a little bit more empathy and happiness in the audience versus this version where they don't have that little tiny curl in the corner of their mouth, right? So that would be an example of how I've used it for years. When it comes to relationships, um, the first thing that I thought of, and my guess is that this is something you can immediately relate to and you've heard from your clients a thousand times in conflicts, well... It's not so much what they said. It was their tone. 
Mm-hmm. I bet you've heard that once or twice, haven't you? Yeah. Yes, yes. And would this be an example of like the, this neuroception of putting off a specific energy, even if it's not the exact words, they it's how they would apologize or how they ask a question. It's not even so much what they said, it's how they said it. This is a source of a lot of conflict in both my professional and personal life because the version of me that comes out of my head is yeah. very different than the version that's in my head. Exactly. And we think we're showing something, but often what we're showing, like I mentioned, is not congruent with what's actually happening on the inside. So let's dig into that a little bit further to understand what are what are some of the areas that you would say when when a couple comes to you. And again, I think that we're we're probably going to dive mostly into the personal side of things, but all of this is so universal to professional collaboration as well. Maybe minus the most intimate parts, but we are talking about Hollywood, so that that even occurs as well. Um, but in general, what are some of the the most common patterns that you see when it comes to conflict in relationships? Yeah, well, I would say the distance or pursuer. So this is the pursuer tends to be a little louder. It could look like questions. It could also look like the one that will raise their voice or be angry or a little bit more demonstrative or expressive. Um, some people will call that the hailstorm. <laughs> They'll be very dynamic in the way that they're expressing their feelings and uh, the other tends to be a little bit more, they will call it like the tortoise. They'll go in their shell. They'll be a little bit more avoidant or internal. And these are the two main styles as it relates to attachment. As you're talking about conflict, I mean, this can take many forms where, I mean, we, I could give you lots of examples. Are you wanting me to categorize or are you wanting more examples? No, just to, if you if you were off the top of your head, it doesn't have to be any specific framework or based on research, just your own personal experience, having done this for more than 20 years and having countless couples coming to you, what are just the most common things like, yeah, I hear this every day and this is a very common source of conflict all the time that creates stress and friction in relationships? Yeah, well, typically there's main areas of conflict and oftentimes, again, what's happening on the inside, it's not about the dishes, it's not even about the children, it's often not even about the money or the sex or the who's expressing what, it's often about these deeper attachment needs, like does he care, like if he didn't take out the trash, he's not thinking about me, he's ignoring me, he doesn't really consider me, like that's not just the trash, right? And so the conflict and the differences often, and, and then you also mentioned, right, when we have differences, this could be the one that's extroverted or the one that's introverted. I love that the Gottman Institute, and they do a lot of research as it relates to couples, came out with some research that the average couple has seven to eight irreconcilable differences. And that was a pretty alarming when I first came across that, but I thought about it and I'm like, yeah, that, that actually makes sense. So the one that's more expressive, the one that's um, a little bit more contained, the one that's on time, the one that is a little bit late or the spontaneous one, the planner, the saver, the spender. So I could go on and on about these differences and those differences on face value can feel like a conflict. And typically our attempt is, oh, if you would be more like me, then we wouldn't have an issue. Or 
let me tell you about yourself so that, and this is where the criticism shows up. Let me tell you, give you unsolicited feedback (laughs) that's corrective. And I think that my opinion based on me being your partner is so valuable. This is just all I have to do is just tell you. And typically in relationship, we're not in relationship to be evaluated or to be critiqued. And we're actually not that interested, surprisingly, of our partners when it's unsolicited. If we're soliciting it, of course we care. But if it's unsolicited, it's a distraction because what happens, Zach, is the person that's having issue, if they're attempting to resolve the issue by means of criticism, it's a distraction because what that then means is I'm going to tell you about your errors and expect that you're going to make some changes. And that should be the end of the conversation. Well, the person on the receiving end is, I do not agree with that. Your characterization is not at all what is true. Let me defend and tell you about how many times I did take out the trash or how many times I do think about you. And then we're often rolling in the recrafting reality or trying to get some sense of, are we speaking the same language when that's not the point. The point is when you didn't take out the trash, I got scared or got worried, or I get concerned that I'm not in your mind or I, you're not thinking about me or that you don't really care about our agreements. Like that's a different thing to lead with. So I I hope I'm answering your question because the conflicts on face value will look like a bunch of different things, but on the underneath part, it's often about something very different, which is on its core basis, usually about something attachment related. Yeah. Well, what I have found more often than not almost universally is whatever you think the thing is, it's not the thing. There's a thing that's so much deeper underneath the thing, not just in personal relationships, but in professional relationships, or even if I'm in the process of crafting a fictional story and you're getting criticism on what that story is, the idea of the note underneath the note. Well, this scene doesn't really work or this character doesn't work or I'm not feeling this thing. So fix this problem. And you're like, the reason you're actually feeling this is because of something that happened 45 minutes ago with a totally different scene, but being able to understand that whatever the thing is, isn't really the thing. And there's a thing under the thing is so applicable to relationships because you're right. It's never about the dishes. It's never about the the buying the shoes or never about the whatever, right? Uh, and this idea of the irreconcilable differences, I don't know if we've got seven, but I can already tell you we've got one and it would be Disneyland is fun versus Disneyland is not fun. I'm guessing you would probably figure out which camp that I'm in. Anybody that knows this podcast knows instantly which one I'm in. This is one of those that after almost 20 years, we've just come to agree to disagree about one that absolutely enjoys the theme parks and the the Disneylands and one that's like, nope, not for me. But that would be an example of one where even though it's irreconcilable, there's this just agreement of totally fine that that's who you are, totally fine that that's who I am. Yeah. One thing that might serve your audience, because you've really helped me know that many people are are negotiating the professional world. And I do think it fits for both personal relationship and relationships across the board. And this can be really helpful tool in, in an interaction where what if it's starting to feel tense or conflictual is Asking the question either internally or if it feels appropriate, even making it explicit, but trying to understand 
Cause most people are surprised. Like when somebody's coming at them with a little bit of heat, like, Whoa, what's, what's happening here? Like what, like I'm feeling attacked or I don't understand what the, what, where we just got off track. So if it's disorienting or confusing and it seems like un, unknown, like what, I don't get this is to ask the question. I mean, yes, we're going to listen to the content of what somebody's saying, but as you're saying, and I'm saying, sometimes it's not even about the thing. It's about something else is to ask the question, how is this, like, what really matters to them? What is it that they're needing right now? Not so much needing, but like, what's the importance here for them? Like, what, what is it that they're charged about? And I think that question, if we just hold that question, it can be a pivot towards something that can be sometimes a breakthrough. Because if we don't get super attached to whatever they're throwing at us and we stay with this curious question of wondering, okay, they have feelings about this. What is it that they're wanting or needing right now? Like, what is it that's super important to them? And if we can get that and even say, oh, it sounds like X, Y, and Z and reflect it back, that starts to then get at the real juice. And then there's a lot more opportunity to get creative, collaborative, and constructive about resolution. Yeah, that's that's a framework that I found that I've used a, a lot in many an instance where there's been a, a pretty significant creative conflict about it should be this way, it should be that way. Or what I've also found is people want to give you solutions. And I feel that my job is to provide the solutions. I just want you to tell me what isn't working. And I think that that can be applied both in a personal and a professional relationship. But I can remember one show that I worked on, really complicated series finale. And everybody was, they just couldn't crack it. And they were trying to throw all these ideas. And I just stopped everybody. I'm like, let's not, we don't need to be in problem solving mode right now. Don't tell me what you feel is the solution. Just tell me what you need from this. If this were exactly what you wanted it to be, when you're done watching this, what do you feel? What is it accomplished? Like, oh, well, that's a totally different way to like, well, if ideally it's going to do this and it feels this way. And these are my thoughts. I'm like, great, give me a day. Come back and I'm going to show you the scene that accomplishes all these things as opposed to everybody's trying to problem solve it together. And I think at least with me, because I am a problem solver for a living, I always want to right away dig, all right, so what's going on here? How do we fix this? And sometimes that's great. Like you said, when it's solicited, However, when it's not, that can be a really, really big source of conflict, which is something that I want to get into next, specifically with personal relationships. Because professionally, it's all solicited because we're supposed to give each other notes and criticism, criticism and make it better. Yeah, we've signed up to be evaluated or to be in a place of this collaboration and giving feedback or it's hierarchical and we have a boss that gets to kind of override or make a final executive exactly. decision. Yes. So when you're when you're wired 60, 70, 80 hours a week to be in this collaborative environment where it's okay and safe to say what isn't working because we all have the same common goal of making this better, sometimes you forget that in a relationship, it's not the same solicited amount of feedback. And again, without getting too personal on the other side of things, I can at least talk about it from my perspective, is that one of the most fundamental lessons that I've learned, both from my personal relationship, but also now being in the space of personal development and going to multiple events. And for example, I've spoken a few times at some uh, Tony Horton events, the guy that, uh, as you yeah. know, from the, you know, Melissa Costello, and that's how you and I connected. Um, and the number one question that 
most people ask, this is a question I asked for years, and I even asked him at one point, is what do you do when you want to grow the relationship or help somebody else, whether they're dealing with, you know, drinking or smoking or whatever it is, something that's unhealthy for the relationship? How do you help somebody when they don't want to be helped? It's kind of the universal question of a relationship where you really have nothing but the best of intentions. But that the best of intentions is meeting that friction of, well, if it's not solicited, it's not heard the right way. I would guess that this is a pattern that you see a lot in relationships. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you, are you saying, is this like a ninja move that you're asking me? Or because I do think it's a different relationship when one is in the helping space or the coaching space and someone doesn't like they're showing up and they're perhaps paying or they're doing whatever they're doing to engage, but they, at the end of the day, they don't really want to do the work or they're not really wanting it. Like, I do think that there's ways that we can help work with that resistance or help them really get in touch with the thing that they would love and really help them maybe look at all of the things like that help them accomplish and being in service of their why or what they would Mm -hmm. love. But when it comes to relationship and we have a front row seat to our partner and perhaps ways that they might sabotage themselves or hurt themselves, not like hurt, hurt, but like Mm -hmm. get in the way. Are you asking how do we deal with that? Is tell me if I'm not. Uh, I don't actually know what, uh, it wasn't like any kind of a, a ninja ask in any way, but I know that the, the answer that I've heard to this question more than once by more than one professional. And I've even, when somebody's asked me this question where they said, listen, now that I've really gotten into running and marathon training, I really want my wife to be able to, to come with me. I have to have one client that I'm thinking of specifically that I won't name by name. But like now that I've kind of found this and I feel so much better, I want my wife to, to run marathons with me, but you know, she's not interested. And I always say, you, you can't, You can't help somebody or give them this feedback and make changes if they're not soliciting it or wanting it first. So, and I've also heard that advice from other experts where they're like, you can't help somebody that doesn't want to be helped. But I'm also very encouraged by the fact that you feel that there is more that can be done other than, well, you know, this is the main conflict in the relationship is I want to go in direction A, they want to go in direction B. And, you know, there's there's nothing we can do about it. Because I know that the, this is brought to me all the time, even though I do mostly career development and productivity and time management. The thing underneath the thing is I can't send the outreach email or I can't exercise or whatever it is because there's so much weight and conflict in my relationship. It's just it's a lot. It's creating a, a lack of focus. And it generally stems down to. I'm somebody that's really driven by personal and professional development with somebody that isn't. Mm -hmm. Well, just to quick clarify, when I said ninja move, I was wondering if you're asking me, is there a question that a partner could, or a way, approach that a partner could show up for the other that would be motivating when they don't want to do the work? That would Mm. be kind of like a ninja move, right? Like, Uh And I just think, unfortunately, again, this neuroception people sniff this out really quick. The BS radar is like, mm-hmm. I, I know what you're doing. <laughs> like yeah. You're not clever, right? And so to your point, I do think that it's difficult to start encroaching into someone else's space and giving them feedback or evaluation or helping coach them when it hasn't been asked for. That being said, when one is really in the practice of growing themselves, it is a conflict. And to have concern around here's what 
I'm envisioning and here's what I'm actively pursuing. And I, I'm struggling with how, what that looks like if we're not on the same page or you're not interested and a way for us to share. It doesn't have to be the exact same thing, but for us to be able to share the type of closeness, the type of connection, the intimacy that I'm looking for is growth, right? So if one is in pursuit, and real simple way of saying this is if one partner's in pursuit of growth and development, and likely that's gonna be on multiple levels at, at any given point, and the other partner is not, right? Typically that looks like, being more comfortable or not wanting to stretch, or um, there could be lots of reasons for that. That can be extremely difficult. And sometimes for some, that's a deal breaker. And I'm not saying that that's the net net, but it is difficult. And in my dissertation, I came across this um, research that Oftentimes, one person, they didn't start the growth together. One partner, it, it was either... So the, so what I was looking at was couples who are in practice of like conscious, intimate relationship principles. And so what I found was most of the time, it was either one partner had already been in the growth process and the other one was like, oh, I like, I like what they're doing. I'm going to get on my own little train here and um, we're going to have some way we can share this. It might not look exactly the same, but the other partner came along at some point or they were both in it when they met. Um, I think it's probably less, um, I think it's less common that both start at the exact same time or that one is completely unwilling to do anything and the other's like super growth oriented. So I think there's a lot more gray here. Uh, and I think the best just to reiterate is when the person that has the concern can speak from a place of that vulnerability of revealing of like, here's what I long for. Here's what I wish for and, and would love with you. Or here's what I want to cultivate with you. It's a real call. And if the person's like, sorry, I, good luck with that. I don't know what to tell you. I would maybe seek some support from someone who does have training and working with couples because I'd be interested in that. Oh, I don't know. Good luck with that. Like, is that protection? Is that fear? Is that, you know, fear of an addict? There could be a lot of things that could be happening on the inside. But if it's getting support and really un unpacking that and looking at like, no, this person really doesn't have any interest, then that's more information. But sometimes, again, as we've been talking about, that disinterest isn't always disinterest. It's just, you know, again, I gave a couple examples. It, it, it might not reflect what's actually happening on the inside. Mm -hmm. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat. And I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for 
for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. Uh, and one of the things you brought up that I think is so important to, to mention is when it makes sense to possibly bring somebody else in. And what I have found is so helpful in the therapeutic process in general is this idea of oftentimes a therapy, a therapist serving as a translator <laughs> of either whatever your own thoughts are, or if you are dealing with conflict where it's a matter of, blah, 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 blah. well, what they're really saying is, you're like, Oh, that's not what I heard at all. So yeah. I find that that can be tremendously beneficial. And this kind of uh, helps me transition to kind of one of these frameworks uh, or strategies that you talk about with conflict that I want to go into a little bit deeper that I think is really important in any realm of conflict, which is the idea of I, I, I versus you, you, you. Mm -hmm. So I want, I want to make sure that people, they, number one, they had these bigger concepts and ideas to really think about how do I generally fit into this or that or that to better understand myself and others, but also just on the ground, what are some things that I can use right away to try and dig in and improve conflict and relationships, whether personal or professional? And this is one that really stuck out to me. So when I talk about I versus you, what are we talking about here? Mm -hmm. Well, I would say it's very common and natural to point to the thing that hurts, right? So we want to describe the thing that hurts. We want to point to it. We want to bring attention to it. And typically when it relates to relationship, that means the other person. And so when we're saying you, 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 as I mentioned earlier, likely the person's not going to agree with you. They're going to have their own feelings and defensiveness likely around that feeling inaccurate and a mischaracterization. And then again, it diverts from the point, which is I'm struggling. I have an issue. I have a concern and I want to talk to you about it, which is the I, right? And so typically if we can make that visible, stay in our own lane, our partner's going to be so much more interested because they don't have to defend on what feels like a character attack or a blame or a criticism. They're not having to defend any of that. They can just show up for being interested in, oh, you have a concern. Let me, I would like to hear about that or tell me more. So the I is typically, here's where my mind goes. Here's what I'm thinking when X, Y, and Z happens or in this dynamic, here's what I'm feeling. Here's what I'm experiencing. And here's my worries or my fears. So that then is put on the table. And then likely the partner has a much more um, ability to respond and, and meet that. And so, yes, to your point, 
I mean, you have a clear framework, but it's it's very classic. It's just using language that is revealing. And the I statements, it can be tricky because people can say, I feel that you, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And the you is, you did X. And I don't think there's anything wrong with saying when X, Y, and Z happened, but to really pivot back towards, can I show you, can I reveal my world with you, which is typically the I. And All right. So I want to dig into this and get really, really specific now because yes. this seems little and it's really big. And it goes back to this idea of the thing underneath the thing. But this is really it's simple to implement. You don't need multiple psychology degrees to start practicing with this in a relationship. So, and this is actually one of the, the if we're, if I'm going to do some uh, shameless self-promotion for you, the free guide that I want to make sure people know you have available is kind of this before and after. Here's one way I could approach it. Here's the other way. So you just never clean up the dishes in the kitchen, right? You just, you leave the dishwasher open, you leave the plates on the counter. That would be an example of the you, you, you. A very, very common challenge. How do we reframe this using this you versus I? If, if you have, if I were to, to come in and I were to work with you uh, with uh, my spouse sitting next to me and it was all about you are always doing this thing or that thing or the other thing and it drives me crazy. How do we use a simple framework to turn that around? What does that look like in real life? Yes. Well, I, if I was in session, I would ask the person to tell me how, how is that for you when your partner leaves the dishes. Tell me more about that for you. And so if we can unpack that and understand the person's experience, then we get to be able to frame this in the I statement, which is, I'm going to now reveal to you what happens when the dishes are left in the sink and the dishes are all over. Here's where I, here's where I am. And then that is a reveal. And when we can reveal or send a request, then our partner is able to usually hear that and respond to that. Am I answering your question? Yeah. And I want to get even more specific. And by the way, if anybody's wondering in this relationship, I'm the one that leaves the dishes on the counter and I'm the one that doesn't clean everything up properly. So I just want to be very, very clear um, that I would be the one in this circumstance, if we're going to look at it superficially, I'm the one at fault. Right. So that this is definitely more me where I'm the one that'll leave the thing sitting around. And uh, the the idea being that let's say that it were in reverse. Let's say that I were the one that were casting the aspersions and saying you are the one that leaves the dishes on the counter. Um, and I want to go even one layer deeper. Mm-hmm. You're such a slob. Now it's not just there's this thing, but now we're talking about character and identity. This is where conflict really starts to just dig in. Yeah. If I'm, if I'm saying something like, all you do is leave all this stuff on the counter, you're so lazy and you're such a slob, talk to me about all of the things that are happening in there and then how we reverse engineer it to be, have it just be more about the thing underneath the thing so it can lead to a resolution rather than just creating more of a divide. Well, I want to say, I know you want to be super specific, um, but I do want to give some context that when we refer to character attacks or even criticism for that matter, repetitively. And this can be a little bit of a habit. It can even be a little bit addictive because it's a short-term relief. However, it doesn't result to a long-term positive resolution or something that moves the needle. And there's a lot of research that shows the criticism is extremely damaging for the bond. 
It likely is going to hurt your partner. It's going to hurt the bond. It's not going to create any safety. Your partner's likely going to get defensive, not respond to you. You're not going to feel any type of attention around the thing that you need help with. And so your partner's not going to respond. And again, it's going to damage the bond. So to reverse engineer this, it's similar. It's let's look at whatever the, the hurt is. And even though I want to do some character attacks, let's hold that. Let's pause, refrain from that impulse because likely one grew up in an environment where that was modeled either criticism, one is highly critical of themselves, or they're in an industry that highly values the intellect. And it's safer to be in the evaluation and the critical mind. It's not as vulnerable. Or even at some point in one's life, they did attempt to be more emotional and vulnerable and it wasn't met. And therefore, why would I go there? So it does require slowing down, really looking at, okay, well, what's going on here when I want to attack my partner and say that they're lazy? What is it that I'm feeling? What is happening for me? And how can I get in touch with that and make that more visible and vulnerable so that my partner can understand and then work with me? So I feel like I'm not answering your question because I'm saying something very similar and you're saying you want more specifics. No, no, but- I think I think I think this is totally great. I'm what I'm trying to to get into a little bit deeper are some of the the simple kind of before and afters that you had where it was this oh, idea of shifting criticism okay, okay, from okay. connected communication and I, I have a couple that I want to throw in there as okay. well. So I guess uh, an you example want examples. Would, right. So maybe okay. I, was, I I if anybody's struggling with the answer I always know it's cuz I didn't ask a good enough question cuz the quality of the answer is dictated by the quality of the question. This is something I talk about with my students all the time, and I fall prey to it like anybody else. Um, but let me give you an example of kind of one of the, the lessons that I've learned personally and how I apply it both in the personal relationships and a professional setting yes. where, and again, just, just to frame all of this, I'm the slob that leaves the stuff on the counter, not my wife. But it, if I were going to apply this in reverse, it wouldn't be, you are doing this, you're such a slob. It would be the neutral when this thing happens. So when the dishes are left on the counter, this is how I see it or how it makes me feel. And I found that in learning just how to frame something that simply, it completely changes the conversation and the direction that it goes. That to me lends to more listening. As soon as any conversation starts with an attack or anything, it's like there's no way it's going to resolve itself. And I want to both go into that, but also kind of to piggyback off of that. I wish I could remember both the statistics behind this and the source. But I learned this years ago, and whether it was a seminar or a video, I don't know. I'd like you, um, I'm guessing you've just, you've consumed so much personal development that half the time you're like, I don't know where I learned this from. I want to quote the person I don't even remember. But it was this idea that the vast majority of conflict arises from the way you frame like the first five or 10 seconds oh, of the yeah. conversation. So that's I, the I, Gottman inst- Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's probably where I learned it because I've gone through a lot of Gottman stuff, but I couldn't remember what it was. But let's talk a little bit more about this idea of how to frame and structure a conversation and then get to some of these examples where we see them reframed. Mm-hmm. Well, what you're referring to is uh, what they would call a soft startup. So oftentimes we let the agitation build to the place where it almost erupts. And most of us... That's don't me, wanna... by the way. That's me. Just putting that out there. That's me. 
Right. I mean, we don't want to rock the boat if there's harmony and we want to preserve the goodness. We want to feel the joy and the play and the closeness. Like, why would we want to disrupt that by bringing up an issue? Mm -hmm. And if it happens enough and it happens and we're like, oh, this is the thing. And I've been holding this. And sometimes when we hold, right, it's the classic straw that breaks the camel's back. So it then can be more amplified. And so it can seem more intense or can use harsher language. And that startup, meaning the point in which we initiate the conversation with our significant other, that's the start. If it's got a lot of intensity and charge and harshness to it, likely the partners, the person on the receiving end is not going to feel safe. It's going to feel threatening and they're not going to want to engage. And thus it doesn't typically go very well. And that's the, it can be determined in very, you know, short amount of time, those first few seconds. So to reverse that is to be more intentional around So what it is, is not reacting, right? Trying to do our best to not just react and really set this up for success. So to take time to understand what is it that's happening for me, as we've been talking about, and you just spelled out, can I slow down? Can I get clear on what my reveal is and what my request is? Because typically we have an experience and we also have a desire or a need. Sometimes that's not super crystal clear, but sometimes it is. For example, my husband, it's such a silly example, but he's a six three and he's got like a size 13 foot, but he'll leave his shoes. We lived in California and Santa Barbara. So we, it's very comfortable weather and uh, we would, we take our shoes off in the, in the house and he will leave them right in the pathway. (laughs) I was like, why do you do this? And I would get so bothered by it. I realized that if I'm not looking down, it's actually a trip hazard. And I had strong feelings about it because I'm like, this feels a little scary if I have groceries or I don't know that they're there. And so I would complain about it. And he didn't quite, like it just, it didn't land. And I don't know that I was like character attacking him, but when I could help him understand like, Hey, like when I need to walk through the doorway and if I've got groceries and I'm afraid I'm going to trip, like, or if I have tripped, like that's really difficult. He can understand. I know this doesn't have a lot of emotional charge to it, but he can see what it is for me and why it's a challenge. And he wants to help me. Like typically in relationship, when things are, you know, more or less good, we can feel that desire to care and show up. Now, if I grill him and like, you're so lazy or you don't really think about me and you're just absent-minded or you're leaving your shoes and you're so inconsiderate, Like I'm judging him and I'm critiquing him. And again, as we talked about, that's going to distract him. He's likely going to defend that all the ways he is considerate. And that's not even giving me attention around the thing that I need help with. So to make it into a request and make it into a reveal is going to set it up for success. And also to your point, having a slow startup or a soft startup, that means we have a little bit of preparation going into it that we're not just trying to process with them or unload and let, let the vent session begin. Like that's Mm -hmm. typically not going to work. Yeah. And I, when it comes to this idea of the soft startup, another thing that I found helpful too, and you can tell me if uh, this is something that, you know, the research dictates also works or it's just anecdotal. I don't know. Uh, But I found that if you frame whatever the conflict is with shared common goals, 
as opposed to here's the immediate negative attack. It makes a big difference, right? So the it, it, if so, if I bring it back into the professional setting, it wouldn't be well. Why did you make that music choice? This music choice doesn't work at all, and you know you're you're not good at editing music. Versus, right? We're here with the the, the idea is we want this to be an awesome training montage. We want people jumping out of their seats and bouncing up and down. I'm not feeling it yet. I think maybe we need to talk about, you know, revisiting the music choices. Maybe it's the rhythm of the shots. But you and I both want this to be the same thing. I don't feel like it's there yet. What do you think? Versus, man, you suck at editing montages. And I've gotten notes and feedback and criticism. And again, it's in a solicited space because that's what I do for a living. But in a solicited space where it's just short of you're not good at this thing. As opposed to here's what's not working, but we both want to get this there. And in personal relationships, it's the same. It's okay. Clearly, you and I both want our children to have a really good education. But here's where you and I disagree on how to make that happen. As opposed to why are you doing this thing? Right. I've always found the framing at first. What we, we're, we're at least in agreement. This is the goal we're working towards. Right. Oh, yeah, of course. Here's where I think we disagree. And I found that that completely changes the direction and the result of getting through the conflict versus it festering. 100%. And I would also just add that I think it's a good guiding light because I think the one that is even having the issue can be a little preoccupied by their own emotional experience and lose sight of that goal, right? This is where you'll hear people say, do you want to be right? Or do you actually want to get closer or get work together with your partner. And I will say if I'm dysregulated or in that fight or flight or want to fight, like I can tell inside me, I mean, I've done enough work that this doesn't become that much of a challenge anymore, but man, there were many points and still sometimes I will notice, oh, I'm triggered and I can tell I don't want to say anything nice right now <laughs> or I'm not in service of the goal of us coming to resolution. And so that's a really good thing to be front and center and have in mind, what's the goal here? Because if I'm not in service of that goal, then let's pause. Yeah, and the of all the the notes, all the preparation that we've done, all the the work that either I or my podcast producer Debbie put together to make sure I get myself get the most out of this conversation first, because I've learned that if I'm not getting value out of it, my audience isn't getting value out of it. There was one phrase of all the things that I'm like, if this needs to be said more than anything else, it's the most important. And I, my guess is you're probably going to agree. But I've learned that the most important skill to develop in any conflict is to learn to take a moment to breathe. Yeah, slowing down is huge. Most of us are moving so fast. We're missing so much about what we're, what we're experiencing and also what's happening in the dynamic. Yeah. And this is something you talk about in this idea of listening without defensiveness. And it's one of the hardest skills to develop. But uh, in just about any conflict that I've had either personally or in the, the working world, what you'll often see is when somebody says something and you can see, because again, I wear my emotions all over my face and my body. When they're done, it's just like, <sighs> okay, now let me talk. 
And it took me years to develop that one skill because I would, my brain is moving so fast and I was always mm -hmm. in reaction mode mm -hmm. that I would either say something immediately after, or even worse, I have a very bad habit of interrupting. And I've had to consciously get better at that. But just if, if for me, being a non-licensed, you know, non-therapeutic uh, professional, if somebody said one piece of advice for handling conflicts better, let the other person talk, listen to them and breathe before you speak, mm -hmm. that would be all the advice that I would give that could be a, a game changer. And of all the things that I read getting ready for today, I could see that you very much agreed with that and the value of that. Super difficult though. <laughs> I mean, this is where in one of my programs, I we were required to do Aikido, which is a relational martial art. Oh my God, that's and, so... Did anybody that already knows Aikido can just know how perfect that analogy is to what we're talking about. Okay, where you it's, already it's get a, it. I love oh it. Oh yeah, because it's all about... You're, you're not attacking. You're all about using their energy and deflecting it passively in other directions. So it's not getting in there. It's like, I'm just going to flow past. It's like your water letting the other person's energy flow through you as opposed to stopping it. So I love this idea of like verbal Aikido. But Yes, continue. I didn't mean to interrupt. I just this no, excites me. No, you're getting me. it. It's it's really difficult. So when we are in conflict, it feels as we're listening, it can feel as though we're being attacked, and we have to we have a choice. We either have to fight back, and it's almost like I've heard so many people say, "If I listen, I'm in. I'm condoning. I'm endorsing what they're saying. Like it just feels like I'm I'm." basically agreeing with you if I'm not mm -hmm. saying anything. Uh, so it's this choice between I'm going to either fight back or I'm just going to absorb and that feels crappy. And so this idea of what they would say, at least the instructors we were working with, that you would get off this line of attack. So I know for people listening, it's difficult. We don't have a visual, but most of the time, if people are faced off, so facing each other, it can feel as though the attack is coming towards you and you have a choice to either fight back or, or kind of move away or absorb. So the goal here would be to step off the line of attack. So it's almost if you imagine a direct line and then taking one step and also pivoting towards the person, because what they really recommend is, oh, if you take a step off that line and you turn away, it's kind of what they say in self-defense classes. You want to always keep your eye on the person that seems threatening, right? You don't want to turn your back. That's a very vulnerable position. And so you want to be connected. You want to be able to see the person, but if they're verbal attack is still in the direction, right? It's going straight. You've gotten off that line of attack. You're pivoted. So you're still paying attention to them, but then you're almost able to witness it as if it's like a movie or a projector. And you're like, let's look into this together. And you're almost like you've stepped to step side by side with them, not completely, but you're looking at it. And then you're much more in a position to feel your own stability because you don't have to contend with the attack. You've gotten off that line of attack and then you can feel your own power. And then you can also still be in observation, still be in contact and in connection with, then you're much more able to respond in the way that you're describing. But it is a difficult thing to do. 
I love that we're diving into both uh, ninja tactics and now Aikido. Um, boy, do you, boy, do you know the way to the center of my heart very, very quickly. You've done your research. Either that or it's totally coincidental. Um, but I'm realizing how absolutely and totally engrossed I've been in this conversation. I don't know how it's possible that we've already been going for 90 minutes. Um, but given that we have, I want to be very respectful of your time. And I know that there are a million different directions that we could go. Something tells me that we may be having a part two in some point because there's a lot more to cover here for sure. Uh, but if there were one thing that we didn't talk about today, if somebody's really trying to focus on becoming better at managing criticism, conflict, whether in a personal relationship or a professional one, is there anything that we have not talked about you think they need to know before we wrap up? I would say that often in the world, the critical thinking skills are very prized and welcomed and, and, um, rewarded, right? When we look at different industries that we need this skill, whether or not one's an executive or an attorney, a scientist, a doctor, like all of these industries in the film industry, we need to have these critical thinking skills. So it's a very difficult thing to sometimes come into the home domestic space, the the partnership space without an intentional, like I'm almost going to take that hat off and not to say that we don't want to think and be in the intellect and bring that because that can be very stimulating in, in couplehood. But the the intention and the goals are different. The way of relating is different. That we are wanting to cultivate a sense of connection and safe haven, like that we have each other's back. And nurturing that bond is the priority. So, and that doesn't come through means of these other skills that are highly developed in our, in our professional lives. So I do think it can be really helpful to almost like imagine some people work from home, some people don't, but there's some sort of threshold that like now I'm going into this domain and I can perhaps use other parts of myself. And it doesn't mean that I don't welcome the intellect, but it, it's not going to be the same driver that it would be if I was working. And I have to remind myself of this too. Sometimes when I'm in task mode, my husband's like, whoa. (laughs) Or he's like, you're not respecting me. And I remember this was a couple of years ago. And I'm like, what is he talking about? And I reflected on it. I was like, oh, I've got a lot of deadlines. I'm in task mode. I'm kind of like moving. And maybe I'm not being super soft. I'm not being affectionate. I'm not being in my body and in my heart. And to him, that felt disrespectful. And I was like, oh, like I didn't even get that. But Mm -hmm. This, this space requires a different way of uh, being. And sometimes we lose sight of that. And I think that for anybody that does specifically problem solving, fixing knowledge type work for a living, it's always about, you know, when you're a hammer, all you see are nails. So when you see a problem, it immediately goes to how we fix it. And I think just kind of a, a place to, to close it is that what I've learned is that sometimes people just want you to listen. They just want to be heard. They're not looking for solutions. And I know that this this is a, an ongoing challenge and, uh, and tool of mine that I'm trying to add to my tool set. But sometimes in a personal relationship, it isn't, let's figure out the solution. It's, I just wanted you to hear about my day. Hmm. My husband picked up on, I don't know if it was a podcast I did or wh- where he got this, but he, it's really cute. It's something explicit that we use now. He's like, are you wanting comfort or solutions? <laughs> I love that. 
I know. What? Yeah. Having the framework of what do I actually say here was actually one of the questions I was worried I wasn't going to get to, but you just nailed it. Are you looking for comfort or solutions? Like it could not be any simpler than that. The amount of conflicts in my past <laughs> that could have avoided that one question game changer. And so, sometimes yeah. when he asks me, I don't even know. And I have to think about it. And I'm like, oh, I want comfort, right? Like mm -hmm. I, I'm not even aware of what I'm seeking. So to make it really explicit can be helpful. Yeah, I think that's an amazing place to leave this. Uh, very much appreciate your time and your expertise and absolutely love this conversation. And I want to make sure that for anybody that wants to dig in a little bit deeper, learn more about how to better handle criticism and learn more about you, where's the best place for us to send them? Yeah, well, I would say drjessicahiggins.com and on the homepage, one will find the guide that you're referring to. It's a free side-by-side -side comparison of real life examples and language to work with around what a critical tendency might look like or languaging and how much more of this revealing, requesting, um, setting up for more connected communication would look like and the language around that. And yeah, I, the, the website has my podcast and other things that people can engage in. I love it. Well, uh, your time is very valuable. Your expertise is even more valuable. You've given both to me and my audience, and I'm very grateful for that. So thank you so much for being here. Zach, it's been so fun talking with you, and I really appreciate your wisdom and your experience. I can feel the rigor and the, the richness of what you offer, and um, it's, I'm honored to be a part of your show. Well, coming from you, that means a lot to me. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I wanna make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even gonna send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.